Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems, and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. To close off series three, I thought we'd take a look at one of the most fast changing areas of plant breeding, the world of cannabis. So in this conversation, I'm talking to Dr. Greg Bouty, who is the Senior Director of Breeding and Genetics with Aurora Cannabis. Greg talks about his early work in sunflowers and tomatoes, and contrasts this with working in a species which has pretty much exclusively been grown on the black market for the last 100 years. Just one of several characteristics that makes breeding cannabis such a different proposition to breeding pretty much any other crop. Transcripts of this episode and all our podcasts are available at pbsinternational.com forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy it. So, Greg, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your role? Sure. So, as you just said, my name is Greg Bowdy. Yeah, so I work for Aurora Cannabis, which is one of the largest cannabis producers in the country, in Canada. Uh, and we have a, a sizable science effort, and I lead our breeding and genetics team. And that, that, that does exactly what it's described to do, right? We have a, a major breeding effort developing new cannabis cultivars. And we also do what I kind of think is the sort of foundational genetics work is uh, the building blocks to letting us breed smarter. So we also have this, this dedicated genetics team, and that does all the, the GWAS and QTL type analyses that, that you'd imagine. And where are you located? So Aurora is kind of made up of production facilities across the country, smaller companies that they acquired over the years, and headquartered in Edmonton. But I'm on Vancouver Island in a town called Comox. We're at about the geographic sort of center of the island. I know you grew up very much surrounded by plants and plant breeding, albeit pretty unconsciously. Tell me a bit about that. So I grew up in southwestern Ontario on a seed corn farm. So my parents not just farmed, but produced seeds. So my summers were spent looking at inbred corn lines and making hybrids and looking at the hybrids. So it's just something that's been part of my life essentially for forever. So they, they founded the company the year I was born. So yeah, I've never really gotten too far astray from it. So you literally grew up with with plants and seeds all around you from from day one. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I've had a few like sort of like uh, the occasional reoccurring awakening to like, wow, plants are so cool. And I should have known, known that more, but I guess I kind of took it for granted throughout my life. But I, um, I went into agricultural science at the University of Guelph after, well, when I left the farm, I guess, not really totally sure. And, and then actually because of required course in you know genetics 101 literally uh, I took that class and it was the first one that really clicked for me the first university cl course that really clicked for me and got me excited and uh, I guess it kind of just cascaded from there you said you went to Guelph and you did agricultural science and then you did the genetics 
101 and it sort of clicked like, hey, this is quite interesting. So how then did you get into, you know, focusing on plant breeding? Yeah, so I, I ended up switching programs uh, a couple times in undergrad as, as people kind of tend, tend to. And again, I think because of my childhood, I, I was aware of plant breeders existing, right? Like a lot of people don't even know it's a thing, right? Like maybe have a vague idea that farms exist and that's where food comes from. And I guess if you thought about it hard enough, there'd be, those farmers would have to get seed. But I mean, we're just not taught that it goes, you know, all the way back up the chain. But of course we had breeders, you know, my dad's friends with breeders and we had them on our farm all the time. So I started getting into more sort of molecular biology type stuff in undergrad, and I did a molecular biology thesis project, but with a breeder. So it was in a plant breeder's lab. Then I did, uh, after that, I moved to Vancouver to do a master's at UBC, and that was largely a bioinformatics master's, so I was still sort of flirting with the more uh, academic type side of things, where it was still plant biology and still kind of quasi you know, related to improving plants, but still sort of down in the weeds and, and molecular biology. And in in that process, realized that I really would like my days to be spent looking at plants outside and not at a computer all the time and that sort of thing. So I looked for more applied research projects for my thesis. And that takes you to breeding, right? But you decided quite early that you didn't want to be an academic. You didn't want to do it in a sort of theoretical sense. So tell me a bit more about that decision. You know, even even a couple of years into my thesis, I was thinking, you know, may, maybe I could do it because a lot of some of the most exciting plant breeding programs that I was aware of, at least to that point, were public programs, right? Were academic programs. So I thought, yeah, it'd be really cool. Um, and one day... I asked my thesis advisor, Lauren Riesberg, about what it's like, you know, day in the life of academia. And without hesitation, 100%, it's, email, it's emails and writing. It's just all, all writing and editing all the time. And he's an extreme example because he has a huge lab uh, and he writes and edits and, you know, contributes a lot of papers. But yeah, that, that is by far the least exciting part getting the formatting right on a paper so you can submit it, making sure your citations, like all that stuff is just not interesting to me at all. So I wanted to make sure that I would, again, have time out in the field looking at plants, being outside, which which is the funnest part, really. <laughs> so you found yourself out in the field, not just out in any old field, but in a field of sunflowers, which is particular certainly at, at some times of year a particularly beautiful place to be so um, tell me about that project part of this really big initiative by the global crop diversity trust which i think is now just called the crop trust was to essentially re-inject more genetic diversity into major crop species so they had a list of 20 to 25 i forget exactly staple foods for people that will be affected by climate change. So it was part of a, an adaptation to climate change project. And so for all of those, they wanted to essentially do what they what they called pre-breeding. This is essentially taking a wild relative or exotic or a land race and crossing them into elite lines and doing some number of back crossing and selfings and evaluations to get them to a place where other breeders could use them more readily. So in sunflowers, I ended up using about 25 
wild relatives, some 12 different species collected all across the U.S. That's where sunflower is native to. And I made these pre-bred lines that were 5 to 10% wild and 90% elite, genetically speaking. I made the lines and I characterized them. So like when they would flower, the size of the heads, that sort of thing. And I also characterized them genetically. So this one has an introgression from this species on this part of the chromosome. And I, I essentially delivered that package to breeders to, to be as useful as possible. I could have did selection for, for one trait or another, and maybe that would be great for the, the first breeder, but the next breeder actually would have liked to cap that diversity cap. So it, it was, yeah, one of those trade-offs where it's like, yeah, probably some of the lines are not as pretty or as useful as, as we would like, but maybe one in 10 of them have, have a useful trait that would have otherwise been lost. Mm-hmm. So by then, you knew you wanted to be in the field rather than behind a computer for most of your time. But your master's was in bioinformatics and your PhD also had a really large bioinformatic component to it. Now, data, lots of it, is being increasingly leveraged in plant breeding. And you could argue it gets more weight than fieldwork does these days. What are your thoughts on that? I know that there's been a trend by the industry at large to move more towards data, which is fine, but there's almost an idea that we can just do it purely with data, right? That we can do AI-enabled genomic selection, and it's going to be so much more efficient, and we just need to throw computers and genome sequencing and uh, markers, and it's going to be great, and we don't need breeders anymore. But I, I really think that you can't, you, you cannot do the breeding without the eyes in the field field work, but you could do the breeding without data. And I know that's true because we did it for basically all of time until the last 20 years without the data, 50 years or whatever you want to do the timeline. We did it most of it without. So that definitely works. <laughs> you know, it still needs to be proven out that we can do it without that with just data. So that might be a, a little bit outlandish of the sounding of a comment, but I, th- I think in some places the pendulum has swung too far. So I want to stand over on the other side and try to get it back to the middle a little bit more. Okay. I'm going to skip on a little bit here. Um, after the Sunflower Project, you moved to California and took a job at Monsanto working as a trait geneticist, mostly in tomatoes. When did you start thinking about working in cannabis breeding? I, I really didn't honestly think about it as a, as a career path till around 2015 which is when I was in California, and kind of two things happened then. Uh, California, the state, legalized recreational cannabis, and Canada elected a liberal government, which is, had essentially promised to legalize at a federal le- level in Canada. And, you know, those things were kind of, in my world, just kind of happening in the background, and it wasn't until I, I basically ate lunch every day with a table full of plant biologists in California, and you know, in tomatoes, most of the stuff has been figured out, right? Like most of the, like the big, whoa, cool experiments were done in the 50s, right? So the, the book was written and we were still doing cool projects and there's still stuff to work out, but it's squeezing out the last couple drops of new, new things from that. Whereas in cannabis, like it's an open book, right? There's just endless cool experiments to do. And that's basically what we spent a good chunk of our lunchtime talking about was like, what experiment? Oh, couldn't we? Oh, isn't it interesting that that it's photoperiod sensitive and it has all these interesting bi- biology aspects, and we know nothing about the basis of them. 
wouldn't it be cool to take this project that I did in tomatoes and do it on that? Or wouldn't it be cool to do this project that we did in soybeans and do it on that? So that got me more, yeah, more interested in cannabis. So you moved back to Canada. What happened next? I actually uh, was suggested by a friend to, to reach out to John Page, who was the founder and CEO of a, a then startup called Anandia, which I did. And I joined Anandia as its 25th employee. So it was a pretty small company then. And critically, it was, it was almost all uh, focused around testing. So the company was, John Page has always wanted to do cannabis breeding as like the as as a big piece of, of the science that's required for cannabis. But what there was an immediate need for and a sort of financial incentive for was testing. So all of cannabis that's produced in Canada legally is tested for aflatoxins and heavy metals and on and on and on. All pesticides is a big one because we want to ensure that we have a very clean product. And of course chemistry. So that was most of those 25 people were working on the testing as a service. And then there was this, just a half a dozen people that were, were starting the, uh, uh, the breeding effort. Starting a breeding program with a plant that's been illegal in most parts of the world for well over a century must come with its own unique challenges. Um, I know cannabis breeding has been happening over the years, largely underground, but of course, without the sort of scientific and genetic analysis that we expect from modern plant breeding programs. So what kind of traits were being focused on by the black market and what challenges did you face when it came to starting your program? So they, they absolutely did a lot of work. Almost certainly potency has been increased over the last decades by essentially, you know, we could call them legacy breeders or hobbyist breeders or whatever, they've definitely moved the needle on a lot of things, but because they haven't been able to work in public space at all, it's not like there's pedigrees, right? It's not like there's, there's germplasm banks where you can order the seed, right? So it's a hundred percent self-reported, you know, names. It's a very mixed bag. Uh, and, and given that it's a clonal crop for the most part, there's essentially no homogeneous lines. There's no, everything's heter, super, super heterozygous. You know, you take the two best things from the cannabis cup and your favorite legacy, your, you know, your favorite old line, you cross them together, germinate those seeds and see what you get sort of thing. And then the other thing that is absolutely rampant in the cannabis seed industry is just straight up relabeling seeds, right? So uh, Blue Dream wins a cannabis cup. Guess what? Every seed seller has blue dream seeds all of a sudden, right? <laughs> right? They just by magic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you have, and and we see this in the data too, where we've sequenced hundreds of lines now, uh, and five things labeled Bubba Kush can be as different as as any random five things, right? So, you know, the names I would say are almost completely uninformative. And then in terms of getting getting the seeds into the legal market, into uh, a licensed space, there's ways to do that. Uh, like there's uh, provisions in the legislation to, to import seeds. Essentially, you're given a grace period to, to import genetics. So that's, that's how we can get it, get the stuff in. But it isn't, it isn't easy. And what you get is, is essentially, you know, I would just call it a bit of a grab bag. It's not ideal. So characterization was a big part of the work early on then. Yeah, I mean, really starting, starting from scratch almost. 
You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security, and more sustainable agriculture. Now, back to the podcast. So this is, you know, 2015, 16, and it was kind of a gold rush, wasn't it? You know, there was this massive expansion very suddenly in Canada and certain parts of the US. And so how did it feel to be in the middle of that? And did it affect the way that you were doing your job or your team was operating around you? Yeah, there was a lot of things that happened in a very short time. So the, the joke is that, you know, it's kind of like dog years in the cannabis industry that like one year is like seven. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of my colleagues actually here just just had his seventh anniversary in the cannabis space, which is like, well, you should retire. Like you're done. Like that's that's long enough. <laughs> um, because yeah, a lot a lot has happened. So I joined actually January 2018, and as I mentioned, I was the 25th employee, and then. Less than a year later, we were acquired by Aurora, which I think at the time was around 1,200 employees, and it ballooned up to 2,500 employees. And now we're back down to some, I don't know exactly what we're down from there. Um, And we've acquired, well, we've, the company acquired a number of subsidiaries and merged them and moved people around. So it's been, it's been super, I would say super chaotic. We've been insulated, let's say, from the all of the volatility that happens, and part of that's just because of the market so volatile still. And it and it's been, you know, like a little bit, I would say, bittersweet from from my personal perspective, which is, you know, I started, I went from the biggest seed company in the world to like a, a little startup, and the breeding team was like me and Jack, right? It was like. That was that was it for breeding when I started. So I thought it was going to be super fun to like be a scrappy little startup, uh-huh. and we had we had raised money to build this greenhouse facility. You know, in my vision, it was going to be the sort of backyard what I would do if I had just raised some money to build a green uh, research facility, which would be like the cheapest everything possible. Uh, but with money coming in from Aurora and money coming in from from this sort of crazy market, we built out an amazing facility like everything is top shelf it's just beautiful space the greenhouse facility is is really world class and it produces awesome plants so it's like amazing space to be in but at the same time you know i'm like back to a big uh a big corporation again which is which is fine it just has its trade-offs that's all uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah. it swings and roundabouts and um, as yeah. you go through that that process of large to small and back mm-hmm. again <laughs> yeah exactly so We've sort of touched on it a couple of times, this sense of the regulatory framework, and it's really complicated and it varies from country to country. And if you're in the US, from state to state. So how does that affect your work, if at all? The Cannabis Act wisely included a provision, a a whole separate licensing category for research facilities. So our day-to-day here in this facility is by no means unenhampered, but but it has a lot less of the overhead that production facilities have to face. So we can actually do our research, right? There's, there's things that are at LPs, at licensed production sites, that would make, make research basically an impossibility. The level of scrutiny and inventory and security concerns and 
production practices that you need to implement for the plant, what you can spray, what you can't spray, how much, all of that stuff would make it very, very difficult to do our research. So thankfully, there's there's this whole separate research license that makes the day-to-day of, of research possible. That said, it does start to cause some frictions when you go from a, a research license out to one of those, like our whole scheme here is to be breeding new genetics to send to licensed producers, right? But you actually need to go through a facility with a nursery license to get stuff to a production. So it's like, okay, so it's a whole nother, a whole nother tier of stuff that you need to do, which again is, is fine. You need to essentially not quarantine, but clean or whatever you want to think, however you want to think about it, material moving out. All of that is just within Canada, right? That is just to get clones from here to a, a customer for production. If you add in international, it is like a multiplier effect in a serious way, right? I mean, it's, it's basically our regulations times their regulations times the fact that unlike a lot of things, we're talking about shipping living plants in a lot of cases, right? Not just seeds. So, I mean, I'm sure you've spoken to breeders that lament the difficulties around phytosanitary certification for getting seeds imported and exported and you need this permit and you need that stamp and on and on. You need the inspector to come. Okay, that's for seeds. We're shipping clones. So they're, they're live plants. So the phytosanitary is even more complex and they need to arrive alive, right? <laughs> you know? so you're, gonna put them, you're gonna put them in a Ziploc baggie and put them in a cardboard box and send them to Europe, right? It's like not trivial. You know, everything needs to, they need to be received the next, you know, the, all everything needs to be super, super tight. And we're getting quite good at it. It's just going through the process, learning it. It's not straightforward, but it's, it's all doable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like a whole separate administrative skill layer that's needed to make sure that all of that works smoothly that you wouldn't get if you were bre- back breeding sunflowers again or um for sure or or critically um you know to, t- to talk and i and i hope i didn't come across as sort of um trying to dunk on be working for a big corporation because this is a case where it would be if we were just that little 25 person team it would be exceedingly difficult for us to have the sort of critical mass of knowledge and skill sets and everything to navigate this huge network of, of regulation. So that's been, it's been super, super great to have, I mean, some of the most knowledgeable cannabis regulatory folks, you know, at our disposable. So bringing it up to date today, what kind of traits are you developing in the plants that you're working with? What are your priorities? Cannabis is kind of, kind of weird because it's weird in a lot of ways. One of the ways in which it's weird is that um, it has a, a ton of endpoints. So it has medical and recreational and product that'll be sold as whole flour or milled or extracted or put in oils or put in edibles. And I, I kind of started off with a, with a tomato or even a sunflower mentality where it's like, well, each of these is going to be a separate purpose bread line. And, you know, so that means we need 16 different streams of breeding or whatever it multiplies out to. And gratefully, very happy to report that I was very wrong in that assessment and that right now the the industry is at a point where there isn't differentiation at a genetic level of those, those, those inputs. Certainly some things extract better and some things know a lot better, but across the board, there's a, a base set of traits that everything needs and most stuff does not have right now. So we're, we're working on establishing that. 
And that's really, first and foremost, it's about flower quality. So potency, that's THC or sometimes CBD, needs to be as high as possible and consistently high. That's, that's a prerequisite. And then it's flower firmness, color, aroma, how, how frosty it appears aesthetically, all of those things that make the flower of the quality. And then secondary to that is like how much it yields and the shape of and all those things that are kind of grower facing. So it's, it's, it's kind of unlike a lot of crops where it's like you worry about the grower's need first and then the consumer second, right? So, you know, yield, 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 maturity, that's kind of the list most of the time. But for us right now, it's really about quality first and then everything else follows after that. Quite a lot of those traits that you just mentioned sound like they're quite subjective. Um, so how does that work? A lot of them are subjective. Some of them are, we know, linked, we can measure subjectively, and then we can back them up with, call it, data on them. So for, uh, I'll maybe make a toy example. It's like you can measure firmness with your fingers, and then you can measure a whole bunch and then confirm it with a machine. And then you know that, okay, yes, indeed your hands are good enough at measuring firmness. But the there's kind of two layers to your question, right? Like one is, is a person actually good at consistently measuring something, which is, I, I certainly agree that's, that is a problem. And then the other layer, when you're talking about quality, is that are we, are we going the correct direction for quality, right? Like, okay, this plant sells musty or like cat piss, right? So gross, throw it away. No, 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 that's terpenoline. We love terpenoline. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, wow, this one smells like garbage, but good. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> exactly. Well, no, and that's a whole that's a whole class of cannabis is the cheeses. And to me, they smell like cheese. They smell like bad, stinky cheese. Don't want. No, thank you. <laughs> so, so with that in mind... There's kind of two, two of the big, well, one of the big areas for our science effort overall at Aurora is consumer and sensory work. So actually mapping what those traits are, you know, being, setting up sort of expert panels of people who are consistently good at smelling citrusy or smelling earthy or smelling whatever it is, and then lining that up to what consumers actually like, right? So, so that's another whole piece of work that is, is being done and is really critical to enable, you know, all the downstream breeding. But I guess also you need to take into account the growing environment too. Um, I know Aurora has different types of growing facilities all across the country, indoor, outdoor, greenhouse. But are you making selections based on the anticipated growing environments? For the most part, we're, we're selecting for generalists. So we, we do evaluation in as diverse environments as we, as we can. We also, just like other breeding programs, we don't hand off like, this is the, the one line you're going to use, figure out how to grow it. We'll say, here's three, pick one, right? Here's three. They do a production trial, see which one performs the best. And then after that, it's, it's a lot of tweaking to get it pretty close. And we've, we've definitely seen like our facility that we're breeding in is a greenhouse that was designed following our big production greenhouse. So not, not universally, but overall, the things that we breed here do better at the greenhouse facility than at our indoor facilities. 
but it's it's small it's small variances it's not anything that we can't overcome with with uh, good cultivation another thing that sets breeding cannabis apart from many other breeding programs is the time scales patience is a key word among most plant breeders but in cannabis breeding things can happen really fast do you want to just dig into that yeah I mean, for perspective, you know, I finished my thesis in 2015 and all of my lines are deposited at the USDA. And I know that they've been accessed by several different breeding groups around the world. And I would be flabbergasted if any have been incorporated into commercial products yet. So that's, that's six or seven years later. Two years ago, two and a bit years ago, well, two years ago, this was still a construction site. And a year and a half ago, we got our license to grow plants. And we already not only have new varieties that were bred in-house in production, but they're already on store shelves. Right. Wow. Like the whole breeding cycle will be, you know, around two years from initiating the cross to having product on the shelves. So it's insanely fast for plant breeding, like totally ludicrous speed. And there's a couple of factors that go into that. One is the biology, right? So it is, it's an annual, but it's cloned, right? And I think with the exception of some ornamentals, I don't think there's many other annuals that we clone. So that lets you, this plant, this individual plant is good. You can just multiply it, multiply it, multiply it, and get up to production quantities really in, in, in more in the order of weeks than months. Like you can do it really, really rapidly. But that's one factor. Another factor is that the competition, in a sense, is is low. So, you know, nobody's had a breeding facility at this scale before. It just hasn't existed. So we're doing orders of magnitude more powerful selection. We're going to, I'd like to think at least, we're going to really outpace the current cultivars in, in a very rapid fashion. And we're going to, all of our growers and consumers are going to want to see them replaced with these new ones because they're going to be that much better. And then the, the last bit is that the cannabis market itself, it's, you know, not currently at all like, like beer, where like most beer drinkers just drink Budweiser and they always get Budweiser, they always get blue or whatever, and that's their beer. Cannabis really seems to be, you know, every time somebody goes to a shop, they're going to get something different, right? And so that means every couple of months, we need new products on the shelf. So that's great for plant breeding, right? That's not, that, that's the ideal. That's a dream, right? Keeping you in business. <laughs> yeah, totally. For a lot of crops, even colonially crop, propagated crops, it is very, very difficult, especially consumer-facing ones like apples. I know it's super painful to get, get growers to commit to a new variety because you don't know what the market's like. In cannabis, we can do produ a, a production run, right, of a new variety and see if consumers like it. And then produce more accordingly, and in this in the scope of six months, right? So it's 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 great it's great in that way. Where you are right now, what is attracting your interest and energies, either within cannabis or beyond that? Yeah, in, in cannabis, the and we're just we're just at the end of a growing cycle now. My may one of the things that really gets me excited is figuring how to grow cannabis outside at scale in Canada, right? So, oh, you know, yeah, you can grow cannabis outside in California, no problem. 
We're not California. It is not the same thing. We need very different technology and different cultivation practices. So that's something where I've put a lot of effort and we're breeding very intensively for because I think it's I think it's really important. It's going to save producers a lot of money and it's going to be much less impactful on the environment, right? These indoor facilities and greenhouses, they produce an optimal environment for the plant, but they also they do that by consuming a lot of energy. And as long as energy is made with fossil fuels, that is no bueno, in my opinion. So, yeah, that's 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 the one thing that really gets me excited about cannabis or well, about the breeding work. And um, if you think back over the trajectory of your career, if you were doing it f- over again, is there anything that you would do differently knowing what you know now? Yeah, I, I thought about this question and I, I don't know. I, I'm really happy. I mean, you couldn't. I couldn't ask for a better, better place to be. I mean, the, the facility and the team here is totally awesome. So I'm really happy with where I've ended up. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how to answer that question. You're happy. That's a good place to. That's a good way to answer it. Yeah, thesis work was awesome. Current job's awesome, and everything in between. Any bumps or valleys in the, in that? Maybe I wouldn't have ended up here. So, you know. Not to get too philosophical, but maybe I wouldn't tweak anything as to not risk this. You might have ended up somewhere else if you tweak bits along the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I mean there was there was definitely forks in the road, and I and I could have could have ended up going a, a very different path. So I'm not going to complain. It's been a really interesting conversation. I think it is a a unique. Um, moment in time to be a plant breeder to be a plant breeder in cannabis um so thank you very much for sharing it with us today um dr greg bounty thank you my pleasure thank you you've been listening to plant breeding stories by pbs international and i'm your host hannah senior plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it So if you've enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues, and please help others in the plant science community to find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. I'd love to hear from you if you want to suggest people you'd like me to interview. You can contact me on Twitter at PBSint or on Instagram at PBS underscore Int. Until next time, stay well.